Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. My guests today are two distinguished and decorated writers and literary critics whose career paths have crossed more than once. Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar. Their first joint venture was a 1979 collaboration called The Mad Woman in the Attic. That was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And Sandra and Susan were also simultaneously awarded the Ivan Sandra Lifetime Achievement Award from the NBCC. And we are so excited to welcome them today to discuss their latest venture, a book entitled Still Mad, American Women Writers and the Feminist Imagination. Susan, Sandra, welcome. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Shannon. Delighted to be here. You guys are participating in the Miami Book Fair this year, and I'm excited to have you here to share your work with the authors on the air listeners and also the virtual attendees of the Miami Book Fair. Still Mad is a curated collection that chronicled the second wave of the women's movement through the works of prominent feminist writers in the 20th and 21st century. So how did you ladies decide what works to include in this book? Uh, Well, I think that we really, the book is an account and a narrative, a history of women writers from 1950 to 2020, American women writers, and the ways in which their works and lives were shaped by what we call the feminist imagination. We started writing it because someone asked us to think about the 70s and if the 70s were still with us. And we were originally going to call it 70s Feminism Today. But that really wasn't a very catchy title. So someone mm-hmm. came up with the title Still Mad, which speaks for uh, at about what we are trying to, to get at in, in these careers. We wanted to focus on women writers because we felt that they played an important role in providing the second wave of feminism words, tools, and approaches that became crucial in evolving feminism in the 20th and 21st centuries. So uh, we picked women writers who we thought had a large influence in perpetuating social and political ferment that came out of their conflicts in their everyday lives and that issued in beautiful, great poems, plays, novels, and memoirs. Yeah, so for example, we start with um, the writer of the 50s who most articulated the inarticulate goals, of, at that point, inarticulate goals of what was to become feminist was, was Sylvia Plath. So we start by talking about Sylvia Plath and the ways in which her yearning to be a triple threat woman, wife, uh, mother, and poet, and writer, uh, just all all fell apart. I mean, she was con- so conflicted in in her marriage and in her, in her, with her maternity that uh, she really, well, we, we, we know that her life ended badly because she couldn't keep it up. She couldn't be the triple threat woman she wanted to be, although she became a greater and greater poet. And in doing so, she articulated many of the great ideas of what was to become the second wave of feminism. A poem like Daddy, for example, which begins complaining that she's been living in the black shoe of the father for 30 years. She was 30 years old at that point. 
and railing against the oppressiveness of that black shoe is really a sort of miniature work of feminist theory. Um, and then we go on to talk about Adrian Rich and Audre Lorde and Lorraine Hansberry, all of whom were equally uh, shaped by and shaping and shaping the forces of feminism. All of the writers Sanja just mentioned were publishing before Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique. Mm -hmm. so our argument is that creative women, women who were writing poetry and plays and memoirs, and essays, and were very, very important in the evolution of the second wave of feminism. But I should add that in this book, unlike The Mad Woman, in The Mad Woman in the Attic, you know, we focus very intensively on individual great texts, and we don't talk that much about women writers in the context of the Victorian period. I mean, we do talk about it, but they, are, they aren't in the public sphere. They're hidden in the private sphere, in the attic, as it were, of Victorian literature, whereas in the 20th century, in the 21st century, women writers are right out there, and women are right out there in the public world. So this book is much more of a socio-cultural history than The Mad Woman in the Attic was. We talk about many more women because so many women were free to express their imaginations. And we begin by talking about uh, Hillary Clinton and her uh, the race for the presidency in 2016, and it's... Um, disturbing, to say the least, outcome. And we end by talking about Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris and uh, Amanda Gorman on the steps of, on the, steps of the, the Capitol uh, during the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Absolutely. And, and, and you say that the politics of the last five years is, is really what inspired you to write this book, um, specifically that the Women's March on Washington in January of 2017 kind of revealed to you how angry and baffled women are today at the state of women and society. So how do you think that we got to the, the place in, uh, in in the last few years where women are angry again? Well, one of the things we trace in this book, Still Mad, is um, a long history of backlash against feminism. And one of the painful paradoxes of that history is that it was often led by women. So in the center of the book, in the 1970s, we talk about Phyllis Schlafly and the ways in which in the 70s, most feminists thought the ERA was going to easily pass in the 70s or in the early 80s. Jaffley at that point put together a coalition that um, put together a coalition of anti-abortionists, anti-homosexuals, and um, anti-feminists under a, a vaguely religious aegis. And uh, from that point on, the backlash keeps on reasserting itself against feminism. And who spoke at her funeral, Susan? Yeah, one of the things we, we found in try, trying to trace out the history of backlash is that, oddly enough, at Phyllis Schlafly's funeral, one of the major orators was Donald Trump. Which, which leads us to another puzzle. I mean, in, in 2016... And in 2020, who were all of those white women, because it was a majority of white women, who voted for Donald Trump? And what did they think they were voting for? Mm -hmm. Why were they voting for Donald Trump? I, I can remember hearing um, on PBS 
somewhere, NPR, somebody saying that, uh, some woman in Montana said, oh, he makes me feel so safe. I don't understand it. The very sight of him makes me feel unsafe. So why were those women voting for him? And you wrote in, in the introduction, I'm just going to read a short passage. Is the culture really changing? If it is, why are so many of our friends still mad? Mad as in the sense of enraged. Mad as in the sense of maddened, confused, or rebellious. Maybe if you come a long way, you encounter territorial backlash. Maybe if you shatter glass ceilings, you have to walk on broken glass. Maybe if you lean in, you topple over. And so that backlash that you were just referring to keeps rearing its head again and again. Why do you think those societal ills persist? I want to say one thing before we answer that question, which is that one of the reasons we talk about a continuous second wave from the 1950s to 2020 is precisely because we think that the women today still confront the paradoxes, ironies, and contradictions that Sylvia Plath, Adrian Rich, and Lorraine Hansberry confronted in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So that's one, that's one point that we should make. Well, certainly there are many more possibilities today than there were for Plath um, and, and, and even Rich and Hansberry. I mean, I can remember standing in front of classes and pointing out to them that if we were back in the 1950s, I wouldn't be, well, I wouldn't have been in front of you in a pantsuit lecturing to a classroom full of 100 men and women. Um, in point of fact, we never had women professors when we went to college. The professoriate was, among other professions, one that was really not available to most women, but only to a few tokens. So there has been change. There have been new possibilities, but the problems remain the same. The problems of backlash, and of course, the problem of childcare, and of course, what we see now in Texas, the problem of women's uh, rights over their own bodies. Uh, these, these problems endure and, and evidently need to be confronted over and over and over again. I mean, it would be sad to think, but it's possible to presume that as feminists get stronger in their claims, in their desires, in their visions, because we are arguing that feminism is a visionary undertaking, the backlash gets stronger as well. Yeah, you then have somebody like Rush Limbaugh talking about femi-Nazis. Sure, sure. You, you, two steps forward, one step back. There's the prog- progress is never it's never linear with with any right. social movement. And we're talking about standing in front of a, a class and lecturing. If we wind the clock back 40 plus years, you have both had long careers as prolific writers and literary critics. Uh, Susan, you're a memoirist and Sandra, you're a poet. How did the two of you meet to kind of combine your academic and literary careers? What drove you to work together? Well, we met in an elevator in Indiana (laughs) University's Humanities Building, and uh, happily it was going up. turned out to be hired colleagues. And uh, we very much uh, were, we sort of bonded as ex-New Yorkers in the Midwest. That was certainly part of our bond. And a part of it was uh, wanting to, talking about literature we loved, but that we had never been taught, which turned out to be literature written by women. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we were asked to teach a, a class in the subject. And again, this is a subject we had never been taught, it was a subject that we knew we knew from reading it on our own, but we had to assemble everything on our own. We had to see, well, we didn't see rocks. What did we do? We dittoed in those days, all these horrible ditto texts 
that that you couldn't find in the library. Um, there were a lot of them, and and but we also put together a range of books that we had never studied in school, and we taught them to a class that was. Um, in a way, as flabbergasted as we were, we we all had a, a great awakening. We had a moment. We had we had a whole semester of revelations uh, mm-hmm. as we taught that class, and we knew because we were so overwhelmed by everything that we were thinking about every day in class, we knew that we were going to have to write a book about it, and we knew we'd have to write the book together because it just seemed too much for one person to do on her own. Sure, sure. And that is, I, I, I mean, it is, it's a lot of work to curate works like this together. And the, the variety of artists that you selected for, for both of your books, it really helps illuminate the many variations of the feminist mindset, because each person's individual identity and experience is evident in their work. That's what fascinated us with Still Mad, is that the lives of these women are very, very different. <laughs> from different geographies, from different racial backgrounds. They come from different classes. And they have they have different contradictions in their lives that they're trying to solve. And yet there's a way in which when you put them together, you can see a kind of, you know, um, need for imagining otherwise, uh, for imagining a world of, of true equality. Yeah, fundamentally, one of the themes of our book is dystopias versus utopias. These women come to understand, you can see it in Plath from the start, these women come to understand that they're living in a dystopia, a black shoe, a bad place. They have to get out of it. They have to imagine a better place. And so utopia and fantasies, thinking of, of a place that would be better, that would be, that would be equal or at least more like an equal place, becomes paramount, becomes something that, that these women are all obsessed with. Sure. And, and, and the book highlights the profound effect that, that such personal literature can have on a social movement. So to, for, for those who are not aware of literary criticism, why did you decide to focus on literary work as a, as a social example? Well, we, we, felt that, we felt that a great deal of the feminist movement of 70s feminism was, was formulated by writers like this. It's hard to imagine the feminist movement without, let's say, Sylvia Plath and Audre Lorde. Even though they were not writers, of, especially certainly not Plath, later Lorde, they were not, to begin with, writers of theoretical feminist works. Uh, and certainly Plath wasn't an activist. Rich became an activist. Lorde became an activist. Many of the others that we talk about became activists. And I would say that another thing we do in this book is to read their lives as if they were texts. That's something that we didn't do in The Mad Woman in the Attic. We just read the books. But mm-hmm. here we're reading lives and analyzing them and trying to figure out how they shaped and were shaped by the feminist imagination. But there were surprises, too, because while we were writing Still Mad, we came across some essays by Susan Sontag. And Susan Sontag uh-huh. is not ordinarily associated with the feminist movement, but Sandra and I were blown away. We just these are very militant feminist essays. And they're as, they're as radical in their way as Kate Millett's sexual politics, and they come before sexual politics, or right around the same time. There were lots of odd, interesting sort of things that we didn't expect to find. And, yeah, that was an you, amazing discovery. Suntag, the Suntag works are at the very end of the Library of America collection of her, of her essays that was edited by her son. 
and they're just at the back, they're just kind of forgotten at the back. They were never in any of the volumes that she issued during her lifetime. She wanted to be not a feminist, not a lesbian. She wanted to be the sort of grand dame or dark lady of uh, of, of uh, American uh, of American literature. Sure, sure. And to, yes, to, to, to discover something like that, it really is, I mean, I mean, what a find. That is, that is a treasure. And, and to put it all in cultural and historical contexts um, that all kind of build to this point. So why do you think so many people are trying to, to, to call the recent activism a third wave? There are, uh, there are features that, that change in the 20, 21st century. Uh, most obvious is the web and, and the internet and, and all of this instantaneous messaging, uh, Instagram and Twitter and all of that is changing feminism. There's no question. The reason why we sort of like the larger umbrella term is because we think that women today have the same problems that they had in the 50s and 60s, that they still have trouble having a, a, a domestic uh, partnership and or children and a career, a profession, or aesthetic ambition. We think it's still very difficult to get childcare. We think it's still extremely difficult to deal with um, rights over your own body. These things are still issues for us today, as they were for the feminists in the 70s. Sure. Yeah. As the possibilities expand, the problems persist, which is a depressing thought in a way. It is a depressing thought because we we are still fighting for the the, the same exact rights uh, that that have been elusive for for more than half a century. I mean, especially the Equal right. Rights Amendment having passed right. co- having passed Congress and gone to the states and being so close to being ratified, and yeah. then yeah. having the deadline you know, remove that. Uh, and so, uh, something that's a, a big topic now when you talk about the women's movement is intersectionality. Um, the intersectionality and the fight for rights, it, it, it kind of seems like it's a blessing and a curse because we all have complex individual identities. And so, we kind of find ourselves reducing ourselves to a gender, a religion, or a race, or an, a, a, any demographic group. Um, and that can dehumanize a person and, and make it a little bit of a, a sterile conversation. So tell us a little bit about identity politics and how that factors into the historical context of where we are right now. Oh, there's no question about what you're saying. Uh, the flattening out can be very much a straitjacket into one thing or another. But when intersectionality arose in the literature of women, the feminist imagination. It was basically in the 80s and 90s. And the whole effort there was to not choose gender or race, to not choose religion or gender, was in fact to to try to understand the kinds of tensions and the kinds of um, overlapping oppressions and competing oppressions that come to people who do have multiple identities. Mm Mm-hmm. We do that mostly with people like Toni Morrison, where we talk very, very explicitly, and with Adrienne Rich, uh, where we talk very explicitly about her efforts to think about the ways in which anti-racist work has to has to be hand in hand with feminist work. Right. I mean, the intersectionality, and in so many ways, enriches 
our understanding of individual lives and works. It helps us to read text and context. But at the same time, I do think that it can, it can cause us to forget what unites us as women, um, which is what Beauvoir talked about and what Suntech interestingly talks about in her essays, in those feminist essays. That is that the primordial oppression, Suntech argues, is the hierarchical oppression of women by men. Mm-hmm. And that is something that all women have in common everywhere. And there, there is no, there is no culture, there is no society, there is no historical moment when it was not the case. And you know, my problem with intersectionality, which, as I say, enriches our understanding of individuals enormously, is that when we think about the, the topics and and goals and themes of feminism, it can cause us to forget what what brings us together. Mm-hmm. What brings us together is a, is a fight that unites me with women in in Saudi Arabia, me with women in in South Africa, me with women in Louisiana, me with women in Israel. You know, I I just think that's really really important. Absolutely, and and, and you say that we're we're facing kind of a cultural chaos right now, with you know everyone ideas movements all being pulled in many different directions you that's you right. know, one area that's hotly debated right now is is transgender visibility within the the women's movement so you in the book you talk about the controversy surrounding eve ensler's vagina monologues to kind of highlight the disparate views within the feminist movement about transgender identity and visibility and there's a debate over whether transgender rights are usurping or fit in completely with cis women's rights. Uh, What are your thoughts on how that is impacting modern day feminism? Well, that is a happy story in my opinion, because you see um, an antagonism between trans trans, uh, rights advocates and lesbian separatists at the turn of the century like in the late 90s, you know, in the beginning of the 21st century. But I think that's uh, uh, that had been, but it is no longer. I think that there is now a much more coherence and communication between trans advocates and feminists than there was then. And oddly enough, some of it has to do with TV. I mean... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate to say that as a person who studies literature, uh, so-called high literature, but I think uh, I think that the general public has been educated extraordinary TV productions, starting with Transparent, but moving on to lots of things like Pose, um, where uh, there's much more of a dialogue between uh, straight feminists, cis feminists, uh, and non-binary people and trans advocates. Mm-hmm. To go back to the concept woman, anybody who assumes the position of woman, whether born a woman or made a woman, or both born and made a woman, <laughs> as Beauvoir would have it, um, is 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 going to occupy that position with some with some conflict. Is going to be prone to and subject to the the uh, problematics as well as the pleasures of womanhood. Exactly. So. Yes, and and so there there has to be there has to be a unity. There are people declaring that feminism is no longer necessary, and for those who say that, what do you have to say? 
Well, you know, Sandra and I used to hear that from students in the 80s. They would say, you know, we've come a long way, and we no longer need what you've done. It's great you did it, but we no longer need it. And these <laughs> 20-year-old students, undergraduates, about to graduate, and uh, we would both say to them, you know, you go out into the job market, and you go out into your profession, you finish medical school or law school, you start a family, you come back to me in 20 years, and we'll have a discussion about that. Yeah. I think they'll change minds. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think, what, what, what would you I, say? I think I, I, I think the same thing. I mean, that was my experience over and over again. Come back to my office in 20 years when you've, when you've tried to, uh, when you've, you've made partner in the law firm, but you don't have any child care or you don't know how to get child care. Uh, I, I do want to say one hopeful thing. So, in conclusion, and that is I want to quote an epigraph from our book that uh, was from a poem written by the Irish, the late Irish poet, Yvonne Boland. Our future will become the past of other women. Our future will become the past of other women. That's something we have to hold on to, isn't it? Absolutely. It makes all the work worth it, doesn't it? (laughs) It certainly does. Yes. Well, Ladies, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I, uh, people can, listeners can get in touch with you through the Miami Book Fair. They can follow Miami Book Fair on um, social media. And uh, the book is called Still Mad, American Women Writers and the Feminist Imagination. My guests today have been Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar. Thank you, ladies, so, so much. Oh, thank you, Shannon, for having us. Thank you, Shannon. And for the authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.